Bibles, please turn to the last chapter of 2 Timothy, chapter 4. 2 Timothy, chapter 4. I wonder what we think God means when He inspires words like safely. Safely. God measures everything against the backdrop of eternity. So this life is for the mission. Paradise comes later. Safety here has never been a promise, ever. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? This life is for proclaiming that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We'll have the party when the work is done. And that work is proclaiming the message of salvation for sinners because the heart of God has been revealed to the church by Paul in the pastoral letters. First Timothy 2, 3 and 4. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For that reason, the church exists. For that reason, we pray that the authorities of the world don't try to keep the church from Proclaiming this message. And for that reason, Paul has written to his beloved child, Timothy, to fight the good fight and finish this race by faithfully proclaiming this word of truth. It is in light of the mission that reflects the heart of God for sinners that we have to evaluate things like safely or safety or safe. The promise, beloved, is not that our lives will be safe, but that we will arrive safely at home. No matter what happens to the child of God in this life, Jesus Christ will get us home before the sun goes down. Paul will be beheaded in Rome. He's already said that his life has been poured out as a drink offering and the time of his departure has come. Back in verse 6, Paul has fixed his eyes on the crown of righteousness, and these are literally his final words ever written that we know of, very personal ones, to Timothy. Our goal in this life is not to live forever, but to safely arrive at home. And for this, our God will stand by us and strengthen us until it's done. Let's pray. Father, I ask that for your name and for your word, you would consume me with your Holy Spirit and enable me to speak from the borders of heaven and that you would enable everyone to hear and understand that you would save and keep through your word. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read verses 9 through 13 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul writes, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Do your best to come to me soon. 
Paul wasn't Superman. It turns out, as his death approached, he felt more and more the need for the companionship of his friends. Only Luke was with him right now. But Paul hoped to have Timothy and John Mark with him also. It would be hard for Timothy to come soon, so we know it must have been a pressing burden for Paul to even ask. It would take Timothy four to six months to get from Ephesus to Rome in those days, over land and sea, but mostly land. From Ephesus to Troas, from Troas to Philippi. From Philippi, he would take the nation road to Dyrrachium and then across to Brundisium, finally on to Rome. And Paul is not forgotten, by the way, about the need in Ephesus. He sent Tychicus there to replace Timothy in verse 12. But Paul had been enjoying the company of others, but two of his ministry companions, Crescens and Titus, had left for the sake of the mission. We know that's why they left in part because there's not a negative reason given for their departure as there is for this Demas. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus has gone to Dalmatia. But notice this in verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now sometimes it's hard to keep um, these sections connected or remember that this was a letter, but listen to verse 10. Let's go back up to verse 8. And read down to verse 10. See if you catch this. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me also, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Enduring faithfulness to the proclamation of the message depends on what we love the most. Demas had been a crucial companion of Paul's. He makes mention of him in the book of Colossians and elsewhere, I believe. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't seem like Demas was a villain. In other words, we, we have no evidence here or in church history that he denied Christ or denied his faith. He may have even just went and joined with the ministry already happening in Thessalonica. But the fact of the matter is he did not want to stay in Rome with Paul. That meant death by association. And it appears that's what Demas couldn't handle. We don't need to judge him. He was just a man. And this is going to happen. He just couldn't stomach the pressure of Rome. William Barclay, commenting on Demas, said that there's nothing more damaging to a man's ideals than the threat of years. There's nothing more damaging to a man's ideals than the threat of years. And I think in particular as we age, we are more and more tempted by the short-sighted promise of comfort. The older you get, the more that comfort and ease become appealing. Rather than growing increasingly enamored, as Paul apparently had, by the idea of Jesus' appearing, we grow more and more enamored with the idea of ease. Now, I promise you that no matter what direction our individual lives take, no matter what comforts are ever available to us, God's heart for the salvation of sinners remains unchanged. Don't forget, beloved, I'm not your Holy Spirit. I'm not telling you what to do with your time or how to live your lives. Just don't forget that true rest comes after this life, not during And don't quit when you fail. Don't walk away because you realize you are less committed 
than Paul was, or you are less committed than God is to the salvation of the nations. It's very encouraging to us here that Paul asks Timothy to get John Mark and bring him also when he has just mentioned how Demas had deserted him. Because if you remember, by Paul's reckoning, John Mark had deserted him once too. Back in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas go their separate ways on this mission because Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them, and Paul did not. He said Mark had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. Now at the end, Paul wants John Mark there with him, So the failures and the missteps or the lapses in courage don't have to be the final word on our lives. A man who was once too timid to endure was now very useful to Paul for ministry. It's amazing how earthy this text is in light of the fact that we just recently learned in 3.16 and 17 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. With that in mind, look again at verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Paul is going to get cold as winter sets in and so he wants his coat. And he needs his books and his parchments, probably his copy of the Old Testament scriptures, maybe some things he might have been writing or studying. That's inspired by God. Don't forget to pick up my jacket. Yes. The Christian life is just real life. It's just real life. Sometimes you get cold. Sometimes you forget things that you need. And sometimes that factors in as you're awaiting your own death. Life here is normal until it isn't. Right? It's normal until it isn't anymore. And who knows how quickly those things change. I love that at the end of his life, Paul wasn't done studying. He wasn't done working. That's how Paul was going to go out. Busy. There's still ministry to be done. Get John Mark here. Bring my books. He was the example of what he instructed Timothy to do. Labor, think, study, work. The word is supposed to be work for the preacher. And that doesn't change in a prison cell, apparently. Why not? Because the ministry of the word is everything. That's what Paul is teaching Timothy. Pick it up in verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. This most likely means that Paul was in prison because Alexander had informed on him and got him arrested. That's very interestingly what the Greek suggests here anyway. This would also explain why he was warning Timothy, who was headed into town, watch out for this coppersmith. He opposes our message. Do you see that? Everything comes back to the message because our message is opposed. We will be opposed. We just never want to be opposed to the detriment of our message. We never want to ruin our ability to proclaim it right? by the way that we are, by the way that we act, by the things we say. But because we proclaim it, people will oppose us. But consider this. What was Paul in prison for? What was his message? What was being opposed? Why is he about to have his head cut off? Remember the simple message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
Beloved, that will get you killed in a world filled by people who think they can save themselves and are offended by the idea that if there is a God, he thinks nothing of their goodness or their effort or their intentions. And that will get you killed outside and inside the church, we've learned. Beware of those who seem to have a problem with the message of the forgiveness of sins as a sufficient message, beloved. Please, beware of anyone who says, yes, that's important, but don't even let it in. Don't let it in. Professing Christians will soon be turning in Christians for refusing to proclaim more than the gospel and saying that we aren't real Christians. That will happen. That will happen. Thinking they are doing God a great service. Paul is praying an imprecatory prayer here for Alexander. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And I think that's because Alexander was rejecting the gospel from outside the faith. So he wasn't one of the false teachers inside the church. That's important as we read this next verse. Look at verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. You see the difference? Paul is in Rome when he writes this. This means that none of the members of the church in Rome, not one of them, came to stand with Paul at his prima actio, his first action in a Roman court, which is like being brought before a grand jury. None of them came to stand with him. He was completely alone. Luke and Tychicus were probably out on mission at that time. But after all his labor for the saints in Rome, all his heart and desire to get there, none of them came to stand with him. Why? I don't know. But here's the thing, beloved. In the case of his own companions who had deserted him, Paul's prayer is that their desertion not be charged against them. Paul wasn't vindictive then. For whatever reason, Paul had to stand alone, but there's no bitterness. There's only forgiveness. He's very much like Jesus here. Forgive them, Father, for what they did. They didn't know what they were doing. I love this quote. It's actually from Doug Wilson here. This is a, re- a response to be expected as long as people are people. Right? When the going gets tough, the tough get going, as the proverb has it, but those who are not tough also get going in another direction entirely. When this happens, it is tempting for the Christians with a backbone to dismiss those who flake and to heap contempt on them. They treat the weak as though they were in the same position as Alexander the coppersmith, but that is not Paul's response at all. He sees their desertion and he notes the problem with it. He is not whitewashing anything or explaining it away, but at the same time, he was praying to God to not lay it to their charge. This kind of desertion comes with the territory. What I wonder is, what will be the thing people desert that makes other Christians angry with them? Will it be the gospel or will it be something else? Right? What will make Christians turn on each other? Will it be that they abandon the gospel or will it be that they abandon something else? 
Faithfulness, beloved. Faithfulness is the charge for the day. We have to remember that paradise is not what was promised for this life. It's not in the cards. All our ducks being in a row, everything being to our liking, has not been promised, guaranteed, or even suggested. And we maneuver and maneuver and maneuver to make it easy and secure and stable and then shake our fist at God for His lack of faithfulness when it becomes rocky. These days are going to get hard. The Bible has been telling us that since the dawn of time. And we still get surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon us. As though something strange were happening to us. It's not strange if we remember that we're sojourners. Nobody's going to live forever. Nobody's getting out of here alive. Nothing is going to last. From the minute we were conceived, we began to break down. It's not pessimistic if you want to go home. We have to adjust our expectations on each other with this. Someone not doing the thing we want is not grounds for a lifelong grudge or being mean to us. It's not a grounds for the breaking of fellowship. I love the way Christians have the nerve to act like they can just write people off. Right? Is there anything in the world more unchristlike than that? Paul didn't hold being deserted by believers for whom he had labored against them. How in the world can we be so quick to dislike or disregard one another over personal slights? Because that's usually what does it. You, you, you trace a church fight's origin. It's usually I was slighted. I wasn't given what I thought I deserved. They didn't hold me in the regard I thought they should have. They didn't give me my respect. They didn't give me my honor. And on and on and on it goes. There's no need to hold grudges in this house, beloved. There's no need for it. And I will say this. I hope that as the church of Jesus Christ in Moundsville, we're beginning to get some sense of the fact that these days and the mounting pressure are going to make the smallest offenses and slights completely insufficient grounds for turning on one another. We don't realize how much God in His providence has designed that we need each other to endure through days just like the ones we're about to walk into. Satan is cheering. The enemy is thrilled how broken apart we are by the smallest things when the times of suffering come. When Paul, when the writer of Hebrews said, don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together even more as you see the day approaching. You see the day approaching. I see the day approaching. They were seeing the day approaching in Ephesus, in Thessalonica. So if it was then that they needed to be together, how much more now? And we've not done that. We've not seen to that. We've seen to ourselves. We fed ourselves. And here comes the rain. Here comes the thunder. Here comes the storm. Beloved, we're running out of time to be petty. 
we're running out of time to be petty and to hold these grudges and complaints against one another. They are anti-Christ. And it doesn't matter if, well, my thing's not petty. Neither is Christ on the cross. Either it's real and it means forgiveness or it doesn't. And you're allowed to hold on to whatever you want to because you can. There's no time anymore to gripe about the things we've been so comfortable we were able to gripe about in the past. That time is ending. Why can't we see the enemy at work in these petty gripes? What what have we fallen in love with that we can't see it as pure flesh? What has happened? Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. That means I have no quarter in what I'm allowed to hold a grudge with. And so, so when you hear the law like that, when you hear that, Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's not a challenge to be more forgiving. That's law crushing you so that you run to Christ because you can't forgive people as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's impossible. It will only be the fruit of the Spirit in us. Those commands are not meant, they're not there like to try to follow. They're there to kill you because you can't follow them. And only in Christ may they be performed in the power of His Spirit. That doesn't make them any less of a commandment. What have we fallen in love with that we can't see clearly? Do we love our preferences that much? Or our traditions that much? As to hurt the body and the cause of Christ for them? Oh yes, we absolutely do. The text could just as easily say Demas, in love with this present world, parted company with us because he was mad that we didn't pick the Christmas musical he wanted. The church is split over this, lest you think I'm kidding. Right? We get the, how dare you? That's important to me. Well, by all means, by all means, let it be done. That's what this is. Misplaced love. Misplaced love. That's what's happening. At the end of Paul's life, we're being given a glimpse of what matters, beloved. Where do we think our little preferences or expectations fall in the ocean of God's mission? I mean, who do we think we are? Why do we think that being annoyed with people to the point of breaking fellowship with them is preparing us to stand when real persecution begins. When being upset about not getting something we wanted is the general tone of our lives, why would we think we're ready to not compromise when our lives literally depend on it? And the point is not to crush you to despair. The point is to know that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. There's nobody that can't say that. So let's assume the need for forgiveness, not the ability to hold grudges, not the ability to want it the way it's always been. Proverbs warns against this. 
Woe to the one who says how great the days were in the past. Woe to them. And that's all we do is bemoan the past. Did we really think we we could make it last or bring it back when it's all passing away and sand? What Paul's warning against here, referring to, isn't going to look like all-out rebellion. It's, It's going to look like us clinging to what we want to the detriment of other people, including to the detriment of the mission. I don't think Demas, the evidence is not there that he abandoned his faith. What it seems like is that it, 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 Demas didn't want to turn from Christ, but he couldn't handle being in Rome. And again, we're not judging him. We're not casting him aside. We're simply saying the way the text puts it, there's being in love with his appearing and there's being in love with this present world. And one of them seems to produce endurance and faithfulness, and the other seems to produce hurting a brother, and who knows doing what with the mission. In the life of faith, co-workers might leave then. We all know faces that were here before that aren't here anymore. We all do, all throughout our lives. Pastoral ministry is weird because it's just, in the sense... That your, your life, when you look back on it, is just years of, of relationships you had that are gone. That are just done. People that you were living your life with alongside and they were your companions and your friends and they're gone. Right? Some of those relationships didn't end well. And so just our lives are just a litany of faces we remember, of things we used to know that are not the same anymore. And, and I, I, I wonder to what degree the Spirit is trying to wake us up to the temporal nature of this life so that we get off the idea that this is going to last, that there's just some way to nicely, graciously coast into the next life. Not when there's a war, right? Not when a king is coming, not when on Easter morning, Jesus walked out of the tomb and jammed his flag into the ground and said, I'm the king of this world. I will have the final say. They've been warring against him ever since. They were warring against him before he came. The kings of the earth set themselves and gathered together against all of God's anointed. It culminated in the Messiah. We we, we had lulled into, into the... False sense of security is just we just fall in love with the world. That that doesn't just mean you compromise when it comes to sin and ethics. Most of the time it means you just love the world more than you should. What brings grief? What brings pain? The idea that things won't last. Fellow believers might keep their distance. We, we, we might get deserted. We might not get our own way. We might have to swallow our pride, but we're His and we're not alone. We're never completely abandoned. Especially not to the point where it's up to us to vindicate ourselves all the time. Like it's up to us to make sure we have our say. It's up to us to make sure we get the recognition we deserve. It's up to us to make sure of this and this and this. Look at 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed 
and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He's in prison. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When Paul was finally beheaded, it wasn't an instance of God failing him. It was the culmination of his life of faithfulness. Once Paul had been rescued from the lion's mouth, that's death, by the way, Paul looked back to Psalm 22 and the prayer of Jesus that he would be saved from the mouth of the lion, from death. And he had been that time. But notice this in verse 18. That gave Paul hope that even though his head was about to be chopped off, he was still going to safely arrive at home. Jesus will make all things new, including mutilated bodies, beloved. Paul had been delivered from the lion's mouth once, but he's still around to pray for those who had abandoned him. (laughs) That's what we look like when we're in love with his appearing, when we're living just to see Jesus, right? When when God reveals his purpose to us, as he did in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, we're therefore finding out what God is actually committed to accomplishing and seeing through to the end. God desires all kinds of people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, there are times when he will protect us so that the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And there are times he will allow us to die so that the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Of course. Remember? His desire is for all the nations. So, beloved, just trust him. Because by life or by death, he will rescue you and me. One way or another, you and I will get home safely. Because when all is said and done, it doesn't matter what happens to us here. We'll arrive safely in his heavenly kingdom. And so to him, Paul says, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul never missed a chance to praise God when he reflected on his salvation, his deliverance. If we could just align our expectations of this life with the purpose of God in the world, the mission that he's actually committed himself to accomplishing, we would save ourselves from so much anxiety and fear. So much anxiety and fear. Verse 19. Greet Prisa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Christian fellowship extends over great distances. I wonder how relationships look from prison. I wonder how time and slights and failures and disappointments and accomplishments and celebrations, I wonder what they look like a couple days before you die. These are his goodbyes in one sense. The mission had 
tied all these lives together and they'd be spent together forever in eternity. And we will join them, beloved. Verse 18 guarantees it. When Paul urges Timothy to come before winter, it's not really because it will be cold, but because the shipping lanes in the area were closed traffic from, by our reckoning, November 10th to March 10th, thereabouts, and it was now or never then for Timothy to leave, to come to him. And Timothy was probably there with Luke and John Mark when, if Clement was correct, Paul was taken outside the city and beheaded at the Ostian Gate. And that was it. They may have watched their friend and mentor die with their own two eyes, beloved. That's that's when it really lands, I imagine. All right, that there are people who really believe these things, and it wasn't just for show. Right, we, it's strange. We, most of us, it's, it's highly unlikely that we would have ever seen such a thing in our lives. I, I, will we see them in our days? I don't know. Will our children see it? I don't know. Grandchildren, I don't know. It just feels different, like I've said before. It feels a little differently than it has in the past. I read a story one time about a family shortly after the United States left Vietnam in the northern region that had turned to Christ. And so the authorities had come to their little house, their little village, and began to eradicate it and these things. And they found out this family was Christian and they had them all lined up and father, mother, kids, and begin to kill them one at a time, telling the others to recant their faith or it would happen to them. And the oldest son was at the end of the line and took off running into a field and the father called him back. He said, do you want to spend your last days running? Or do you want to come back and join us as in just a few brief minutes we will all be together in the embrace of the Father? And the boy came back and died with his family. I don't think, I don't think you live up to that. I think there's grace in the moment for it. Please don't think that after all this time and all that God has done and all that God has been, that he will abandon you now. And if you've lived your life for yourself, if you've been unforgiving and cold and self-absorbed and weak, repent. You're forgiven. Embrace him. He saves sinners No one in here ought to be judging anyone else right now because they're thinking, oh, they're like that. I'm like that. Everybody's like that. Everybody has a breaking point. Except Jesus. Come to Him. Why spend the last few days or years that you may have running for a kingdom that won't last no matter what we do to save it? Run to Christ And let him take care of the rest. He said, well, that's too, I don't know what to make of all that. Neither do I, but it's the truth or it isn't. You want to hear the last words that we know of that were written by Paul? 
Verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. The first sentence is for Timothy. The your there is singular. The Lord be with your spirit, young man, for the labor to which you've been called. The Lord hold you up. And he will be with you, as Paul had just made crystal clear back in verse 17. Pastor, the Lord is with you, Paul says. But in his last sentence, the last we ever read from Paul, the you changes to plural. This is written to every believer that has ever lived. And what better encouragement could there ever be? Grace be with you. Everything the believer is commanded to do, every exhortation, every correction, every rebuke, every encouragement, all our faithfulness, all our endurance is all riding on grace. But here's the thing about grace. It's sufficient for you and me. For our lives, for our deaths, and beloved, when we are weak, then we are strong. I don't know what Paul was thinking right before he died. I don't know what goes through the head of any believer when they pass from this life to the next. But I do know what the promise of God means we may have in those last moments. Peace, beloved. Grace. For we are about to arrive safely at home. And it will all be over. The mission, the faith, the war, these things will be no more. The skies will break between this life and the next because God keeps his promises. Because grace is real. Because Jesus is more real than any of the things we face. Jesus is more real than any of the things we face. And He always has been. He abides. He remains. Waiting for us to finally see. J.R.R. Tolkien captured it perfectly. Perfectly. When Frodo left Middle Earth and all its pain behind. To sail toward the Grey Havens. And the ship went out into the high sea and passed into the west. Until at last, on a night of rain, Frodo smelled a sweet fragrance on the air and heard the sound of singing that came over the water. And then it seemed to him that as in his dream in the house of Bombadil, the gray rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back. And he beheld white shores and beyond them a far green country. Under a swift sunrise. Every word of God proves true. Period. Our goal in this life is not to live forever, but to safely arrive at home. And for this, the Lord will stand by us. And strengthen us until the clouds are rolled back 
and we behold white shores, and beyond them a far green country under a swift sunrise, whose name is Jesus Christ. Come to him. He saves. He saves. And he will save you when you call to him. Now, then, and forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we are and have always been and will always be people of promise. Not our promises, your promise. It was in the garden, it was in Haran with Abram, it was with David, it was with Christ, it is with us. And Lord, you will not fail. You will not go back on your word. We will arrive safely at home. All because you are who you are and what you say endures and can't be turned back. So Lord, I pray as your people that we will trust you. God, that we would trust you for the end. That we would trust you for the means. In the long road we walk to get there, Father, where there are victories and losses, where there are accomplishments and failures, where there is obedience and where there is rebellion and sin, you will not leave or forsake your children. So, Lord, keep us looking to you. May those who hear this message and don't know you yet understand that it is for them to embrace and to believe that Jesus, your Son, saves sinners, saves those who are sure they can't come, and so come begging for mercy. May that be us all. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, waiting for his glorious appearing. Amen. Amen.